0: last time we were together we we talked about last year um 2020 uh and about kind of putting it in the rearview mirror and at the same time putting 2020 in perspective and i challenged you to look at this roller coaster ride that we've all been on for nine or ten months and, and look back to the things that god has built into your life which are positive for you and which have drawn you closer to christ and to keep those things active in your life we also looked at some things that perhaps had gotten stuck onto you during the last Uh, nine months or so, some of those things that attach themselves to us that we don't need that are weighing us down as we seek to follow Jesus, and I challenge you to identify those and to try to get rid of some of them last week. So that was the idea last week. Today is going to be a little different. I I want to try to help you put something else in perspective, especially in light of the fact that we have been through a very intense political season, uh, to to put it mildly, and, and now have a very real uh, challenge and a very real change in our country. There's been a change in the balance of power, certainly at the federal level, and uh, I, I don't talk about politics a lot. I promise you, and it's not really going to be about politics per se. I, I thought about calling this this message putting the election in perspective, or putting politics in perspective, but I settled on putting government in perspective. Kind of that generic vanilla name, although that's not the perfect title for what I want to say to you either. Now. When it comes to government and politics and that sort of thing, some of you here take politics maybe way too seriously and think about it too much. I realize that. Uh, others here are, maybe the majority even, are probably sick of talking about politics and government, and etc., and wish it would just go away. And, and why would we even mention it in church? But let me tell you something. The government impacts your life. It does. And in a way, you impact the government as well. We interact as Christians with the body politic. Politics is part of life. Uh, the, the, the decisions that are made, the things that happen at the local, state, and federal level of our government do make a difference. They have a profound effect sometimes on our lives. Uh, and they, those decisions affect a lot of things we don't think about very often. For instance, they, the government tells you what materials you can use when you build your home. The government tells you what kind of gas you need to put in your car. The government tells you how much of your paycheck you're allowed to take home. The government determines what your children are taught if they go to public school. It determines, um, depending on what state you live in, whether your church can even meet during a pandemic. Uh, Most of us, uh, if you think about it, to find evidence of the federal government's direct influence in our lives, you need to look no farther than your, your checkbook, right, your bank account because the government has been sending us money, money that we didn't even ask for, but it's probably made some kind of a difference in in decisions you've made and how you've conducted your financial life. So how do we respond to what the government does, and how how do we interact with, with what we call the body politic or the political atmosphere of our country? How do we pray? What do we do? How do we respond to government, to our leaders now? That's a little different depending on where you live. There are some governments in this world that take a pretty obvious stand against the kingdom of God. Uh, They persecute God's people, sometimes to the extent of imprisoning them or putting them to death. Uh, Or a lot of other governments, what they'll do is they'll just deliberately look the other way when Christians are mistreated. Uh, Some governments actively restrict who can change religions, who can convert to Christianity, how many Bibles are allowed to come into the country, what the registered churches are allowed to teach from their pulpits and in their studies and things like that. Uh, That is not the case in the United States. We have some challenges here as the church, but to call the challenges that we face in the U.S. persecution, persecution, would be a huge stretch at this point and probably an insult to our brothers and sisters around the world who really know what it means to suffer for Jesus Christ. At the same time, whether or not you voted for the administration that is currently coming into office, it is certainly possible to look at some of the coming cabinet-level appointments and proposed policies and detect a movement in some areas against what we would call christian values or maybe even against biblical truth particularly in the realms of education abortion sexual ethics and perhaps freedom of expression now how do christians respond how do we put this in perspective what are we to think how are we to pray what are we to do what truths and promises can we hold on to when it comes to our interaction with society at large And with the government that is over us i'd like to turn right now and i'd like you to turn with me to psalm number two psalm number two as we look briefly at this chapter and then at a new testament reference to this chapter i want to do two things first first i want to get us at least some idea of, and this is a one-off today. This is not a series about government or anything like that. This is just a one-time message. But I want to give us some idea of how we might respond to the things that happen in the realm of human government. But, but beyond that, I want to begin to lay a, a foundation today for a series of messages that I will start very soon on the kingdom of God. Now, when you say, well, kingdom of God, that sounds kind of deep. That sounds kind of theological. Is that really going to apply to my daily life? Let me assure you that First of all, it's not about politics primarily, but but also that it will be very applicable to think about the kingdom of God and how it applies to your life. When Jesus first started his public preaching ministry, the first words out of his mouth were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So maybe it's a good idea for us to figure out what those words mean and, and how they apply to us on a daily basis. But for now, let's read Psalm number two, Psalm two. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Who take refuge in him. Now, those are some pretty strong words. Uh, When we first encounter the words of this psalm, we have to remember they were first written to the people of Israel and the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. And when the Israelites read this psalm, the first thing they would think about was King David. They would think about the ideal king. They would think about the king that follows the Lord. They would think about the golden age of King David and King Solomon and, and the time in Israel's history when their kings were actually surrendered to God and when Israel was more or less dominant over the surrounding nations for a period of time. And that dominance came because God granted success to these kings and to the people because they were surrendered to him. But it becomes pretty obvious as this psalm progresses that it's not just about King David. And the King David is really kind of a symbol and a type of of someone else that is in view here. This anointed one from God is more than just the king of Israel. It's more than just King David. In fact, it's the king over all the nations, it seems. His rule is universal. And in fact, this ruler is referred to twice as the son of God. So, this is clearly what we call today a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah. It's about Jesus. It's about the reign of Jesus Christ over the nations of the world. And in the first few verses, what's happening is the rulers of the earth so, the kings, the emperors, the presidents today, the prime ministers, the dictators, perhaps some of the rich people and the influencers who who pull the strings of these people to get them to do their bidding they're making some plans. It's as if they're kind of getting together in a room and and conspiring, and they're using all their human wisdom and all their cunning and all their influence and all their political power, probably all their money and all their will and and everything they have to try to throw off the yoke of God and, and somehow squirm out from under His authority. Because you see, God doesn't have to gain authority. He's already in authority. He's already in charge. Human autonomy... Which is the idea that says that we can make our own rules and we can control our own destiny. That's a lie. It's an illusion. It is what Satan sold us in the Garden of Eden and we bought it. But then we found out that it wasn't real. And we were just slaves to someone else. We can never be our own God. We can never reverse the rules of nature or the principles of right and wrong that God has built into the very fabric of the world. And that goes for governments as well as individuals. It goes for people in great places of political power as well as just the subjects of the king or the citizens of the nation and yet the people who gain power over human government to a greater or lesser extent more often than not are always trying to kind of buck the tide against god when leaders and governments take advantage of the poor and powerless when they ignore injustice in their own land or maybe even promote it when they attack other nations without cause, when they try to rewrite the meaning of right and wrong, good and evil, truth and fiction, when they otherwise try to deny or or rebel against the rule of God or when they become arrogant and puffed up in their own eyes and they try to steal glory from God, they are held accountable by God whether they say they follow Jesus or not. All of the kings of the world, no matter what they think of God, or even if they don't believe in him, are still going to be held accountable by him. And as God looks down upon these rulers and their plans to rebel against him and to kind of push King Jesus out of the way, there's two responses here from God. The first one you see in verse four is that he basically cracks up laughing. He's like, really? I have a a cartoon that I've picked out for you here. Um, One of my favorite Far Side cartoons, and I know it might be hard to see the caption, uh, but it illustrates this point. Uh, You see these two spiders here on the playground. And they've stretched their web out over the end of the slide where the kids come down. And one spider says to the other, if we pull this off, we'll eat like kings. Uh, And of course, this makes us laugh because, well, for a number of reasons. First, we laugh because Gary Larson has a morbid sense of humor to think about spiders eating a kid. Uh, We also laugh because, you know, you look at these little spiders. We kind of admire these little guys, right? Because they're going for a really big meal here. So we admire their ambition. But but mostly we laugh at the absurdity of the whole thing because we know that the scheme that these spiders have concocted is impossible. It's utterly ridiculous. And that as soon as even the smallest little kid comes down that slide, all their effort will prove to have been wasted and all their plans will come crashing down. This is the way that God looks at these human leaders in Psalm 2. Like they're spiders, little bitty spiders, trying to hold back His power with their flimsy little webs. It is ridiculous brothers and sisters, to think that any world leader, whether it's a North Korean dictator or a Middle Eastern Ayatollah or a modern-day Russian czar or or the president or the prime minister of a Western-style democracy, that any of these people can do anything to frustrate the plans of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Even if they all join together in some kind of unholy alliance, God can just blow them off like dust off His bookshelf. In fact, Isaiah pretty much says that. He says the nations are a drop in the bucket. They're dust on the scales. So I hope that gives you some kind of perspective when you think about the ultimate power of human government as it relates to the power and the rule of God. We always need to keep that in mind. But I also want you to notice that God has a second response to these leaders and that is anger or wrath. And we're reminded here, verse 9, verse 5 really, verses 10 to 12, most of it, that that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, is not someone to be trifled with. Yeah, he's a, he's a gentle and merciful, healing and loving Savior, to be sure. But he is also an all-powerful king, and he is the judge of all mankind. And the rulers of the earth here are warned that if they don't kiss the sun, meaning if they don't pay homage to him and willingly bow the knee before him and make peace with him on his terms, that he may dash them in pieces in his wrath. And because his anger can flare up in a moment, there is no telling when it will be too late for these leaders to make that decision. Because even if the leaders of this world do not bow to Jesus willingly, they will still bow to him one day. They will still bow the knee to Christ. And like it or not, they will be judged for what they have done, including how they have treated the people over whom God has granted them temporary authority. They will answer for the lies that they've told. They will answer for the people they've cheated, for the blood they've spilled, and for their dismissive attitude toward Jesus, the King of kings, and his rule and his ways they will answer but the question remains what are christians supposed to do with a psalm like this i mean it's definitely a comfort to know that no human government can stand up or come close to standing up against god in the long run but in the meantime how do we pray what do we do how do we respond how are we to think about the relationship that we have with our government and what we should do to try to influence it one way or the other well here's where i want to take you to the new testament because there is probably not a clear example in the entire Bible of a New Testament church directly applying an Old Testament passage to their situation than what we find in Acts chapter 4. So find the book of Acts and turn to chapter 4 because the passage that the church happens to be applying there is Psalm number 2. And, and I'll, I'll tell you the verse specifically in a second, but in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have just come back. They, they, they just healed a beggar that was a, a, a lame beggar that was begging at the gate by the temple. They've healed this man in the power of Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name, and, and a lot of people were watching. And so Peter followed that up with this great sermon about how Jesus was the only name under heaven by which people can be saved. And the people that ran the temple, the Jewish leaders who were in charge of everything in Jerusalem there, they were there watching. And they had respo- they had taken Peter and John aside. And they had responded to them with basically a series of threats. They're like, stop it now. This comes to an end right here. You will stop teaching and preaching in the name of this Jesus person, or else. Now they were kind of vague with their threats, but it was pretty obvious. That that the temperature was rising and a, a big collision with the authorities was just around the corner and, and and the opposition was getting a lot more determined. So what did the early church do? Well, they got in a room and they pulled out Psalm two. Let's start reading in Acts four, twenty four. Acts four, verse twenty four. It says, and when they heard it, that means when Peter and John came back and told them what had happened, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both herod and pontius pilate along with the gentiles and the people of israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place let's stop there just for a minute so far so good okay god is god's people are doing something that we are invited to do and probably should do more often they're praying his word back to him And as they do this, they're understanding that he is the sovereign Lord whose whose plans cannot be thwarted and whose kingdom cannot be defeated. And they have clearly applied this to their own situation. They've clearly identified Herod and Pontius Pilate, these two secular leaders of of the Romans, and and the Jewish leaders themselves as basically the bad guys from Psalm 2 in this case. These are the rulers who have conspired together against God. So the church realizes something here. They recognize that the most powerful empire in the history of the world has now teamed up with the most sophisticated and advanced religion in the world to take down the church of Jesus Christ. So, if you're them, if you're in this room, what do you pray? What would you pray? Have you thought about this? This is very interesting because if you think about the rest of Psalm 2, you might think of what you might pray. That The prayer might be something like this. Lord, Take these guys down. Right? Break them with a rod of iron like it says in Psalm 2. Dash them to pieces like a clay pot in your wrath. Or maybe today something like this. Replace these unfaithful men with leaders who will honor your name and rule according to your agenda. That would be a good prayer, we think. But it's not what they prayed. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. And now, Lord... Something these people had learned from Jesus, or maybe something the Spirit was impressing upon them as they they go to prayer, convinced them that the way to respond to these threats was not to pray for a revolution, not even to pray for the removal of these leaders, but to pray for the empowerment of the church. Not to take over the government, but to speak the Word of God boldly, accompanied by further healings and miracles as God would choose to supply them. And as you can tell from the way the building shook when they were done praying, and the way God empowered these people after they were done praying, he answered their prayer, like right away. Now it's probably worth mentioning that one of the miracles that God did perform in the next 10 or 12 chapters of Acts, and he performed a lot of them, but one of them was actually to strike Herod dead in Acts chapter 12. But it's also worth mentioning that the apostle James was killed before that, that all but one of the original apostles would end their lives as martyrs, most at at the hands of the Roman government. But with every apparent setback, the gospel continued to advance. And by the end of the book of Acts, so maybe 30 years later, without the aid of radio or TV or air travel or the internet, the church was firmly planted in almost every corner of the Roman Empire. The primary answer... The first answer to an increasingly oppressive government wherever and whenever it happens is not for the church to directly confront the ruling authorities but for the church to be the church and to speak the message God has given us as boldly as possible because at the end of the day we know that the gospel is more powerful than the government. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, lived the perfect life, died to take our sins upon himself, rose from the dead, rose to be seated at the right hand of God in authority, and sent the Holy Spirit to this world to give a new life to anyone who puts his or her trust in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. And no government leader, no no government policy, no law or regulation has the power to effect the transformation that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. And that transformation Spreads beyond the individual, into other parts of society as people get changed by that power. That's how a culture gets transformed. That's how a nation gets transformed. And oddly enough, if you look at history, the times where the church has held a lot of political power and the times where the gospel has advanced very rapidly, those times don't line up. They're not the same. They seem to have nothing to do with each other, either in our nation or in the history of of the church as a whole around the world. Now, this does not mean that Christians cannot or should not be politically active. It doesn't mean we should not vote according to our consciences and our convictions from the Bible. It doesn't mean that some of us shouldn't even run for office because I think some of us should. And it's probably a good thing that Bible-believing Christians tend to feel the same way on a number of issues that are close to the heart of God. That's a good thing. But listen, it is probably not a good thing that evangelicals are more readily identified today as a voting block than we are identified by what the word actually means, which is those who bring good news. Will Jesus Christ one day exert his power over the nations of the earth in a visible way. You bet he will. Will the clock one day run out on judgment for the nations and unfaithful leaders? Yes. Will that part of Psalm 2, toward the end there, will that one day be fulfilled? Yes. As Al reminded us last week, that time might be closer than we think. But at this time, we are not called to pray down judgment on our nation or on any other nation, the same way that that James and John wanted Jesus to call down fire from heaven on this Samaritan village just because they had rejected Jesus at that time, and they got rebuked for it. We are instead called to pray for our leaders to lead well, even as we concentrate on doing what we do best, which is not acting as a political power broker, but bringing the saving gospel to our friends, to the neighbors, and to the nations." The government will not do that. And they shouldn't, because it's our job. And we can't forget how Psalm 2 ends. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. It ends positively. That's our prayer for the nation. That's our prayer also for the individual people in our lives that reject Jesus, that reject the Gospel, that ridicule our Savior, that look down on us as being stupid or weak for believing in Him. Or they accuse us of being intolerant or pushy because we dare to suggest that maybe they should consider the claims of christ we pray lord blessed are all who take refuge in you may that be the case for this person may they take refuge in you so they won't have to deal with your anger some of us need to repent of a fixation with politics and remember that jesus is calling us to set our sights on something higher it isn't that jesus isn't a political leader he is but not in the same way that most of us think about politics. All of us need to beware of the anger and animosity that a bitter political season can bring and has brought. And we need to pray that God will give us a love for those who don't think the same way that we do. Jesus said, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and take over the world. Right? No, wait. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, as you do that, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. Let's take a minute and pray for our nation and for our leaders. Lord, we come to you right now as what you have called a kingdom of priests. We come to you representing our nation. We come to you as members of your church, those you have redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we also come to you as, as grateful citizens of the United States of America thankful for all you have done in our country, thankful for the way it was founded. Thank you for the way it's been used by you for so many years as a platform for world evangelization. Thanking you for the ways that you have been glorified by many of the things that have happened in this nation. Realizing, Lord, that it is certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and also that this world is not our home. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for President Biden, Vice President Harris. We pray for the other members of the administration. We pray for congressional leaders, for our Supreme Court justices at the federal level. We pray for our governor, for the state government, Lord, we pray for our local leaders today here in Davidson County. We pray that you would give them wisdom. But before that, Lord, we pray that you would grant them humility. That they would realize that they are not God. That they would have the courage to make decisions in accordance with justice and mercy and truth. That they would hear your voice speaking to them. And Lord, that they would be humble enough to listen to you. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to lead well as it tells us to pray, you tell us to pray, Lord, in First Timothy, so that we might have peace, so that we might have an orderly society in which we would have the freedom to share the good news of Jesus, and that even at times when that freedom is curtailed, that you would empower us, empower your church by your Holy Spirit to speak your word with great boldness, to be more excited to speak our mind about the gospel than we are to speak our mind about our political persuasions. Lord, we want to see your supernatural power accompany our witness. We ask you to to accelerate the spread of the gospel in America. We pray that you would give us a, a true national revival, regardless of the political situation or the party in power. And Lord, we pray that you would transform our nation through transformed lives. And may it start with us as we repent of our own idols and of trying to be our own God. And Lord, as we seek you for all of our answers, as we seek your word for our truth, and as we look to Jesus for guidance and help, and as we continue to rely upon him as our sure and steady anchor for forgiveness, eternal life, and for the message that we have to share with others. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We're dismissed.